Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. Last week we got through chapter 2 of Esther, which means that we're going to start on chapter 3, God willing, and we'll pick up another couple chapters tonight. For those who are new at this, I'm teaching out of this book. It's called The Dawn by a gentleman named Yoram Hazoni. The subtitle is The Political Teachings of the Book of Esther. You can get it at Amazon. You can, I, I don't know whether you can get a Kindle edition or not, but it's quite good. So last week, the first couple of chapters basically introduced us to King Ahasuerus and how he ran his kingdom. The essence of it was that this guy really liked being king. He really liked making decisions. He would listen to all sorts of people, and you get the impression that he enjoyed being in a group of people who were vying for his attention and you know, trying to... The, the only way I could describe it is like being in a bull session in a college dorm, you know, where you're throwing ideas back and forth, and he gets to make the final decision and be the philosopher king. And you get the impression he found that pretty exciting. He also doesn't have any regard for anybody else. In other words, he likes the approval, but when he got crosswise with his wife Vashti, he just flat stomped her into the mud. And it was very clear that his relationship with her was, she was simply another prop in his world. And when that prop wasn't behaving the way it was supposed to be, it was time to get another prop. And the way he went about it is he organized a, basically a systematic rape. So he sent his guys out, his thugs out, and they picked up for him a bunch of physically beautiful young women. And they had no choice in the deal. And they came in and they were prepared for a period of time and then were sent into his bedroom and... If they weren't pleasing to him, then that was the last time they ever saw a man. Because they would go into the court of the women, which means that they couldn't marry anybody else. He wasn't interested in them. And so again, his attitude toward others is basically, how are they useful to me? The other part of this is, of course, you all know that Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle, told her to keep her ethnicity a secret. In other words, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. And in fact, Mordecai appears to have kept his ethnicity a secret also. And the first time it'll come up is in today's portion. Final thing is that both Mordecai and Esther are, of course, in the Jewish dispersion after the destruction of Israel under Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the successor empire to Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire. They could have gone home under the return of Nehemiah. But the point is they are in a foreign empire. And at that point, you've got three choices that you can make. Choice number one is you can sulk, get mad, plot rebellion, and generally be as difficult as you can possibly be. Choice number two is you can keep your head down and hope nobody ever notices you and just 
sort of maintain a low profile and don't do anything. Or choice number three is you can actively help the empire where you are. And both Esther and Mordecai make the decision to actively engage in helping the empire. And again, we mentioned last time that Jeremiah had sent a letter saying, you guys are going to be there for at least 70 years. Cool it. Seek uh, the benefit of the place where you are because in their prosperity will be your prosperity. And in their well-being will be your well-being. And I, I, he- I hesitate to use this analogy because it drives women nuts, but I will anyway. Esther is about to be raped. She has no choice in the process. Now, she can you know, kick and make a fuss and all that kind of stuff and get raped, go from the king's chamber into the disposal area and stay there for the rest of her life, or she can, quote, make the best of it, which is what she decides to do. As I say, that, that attitude is, is very un-American woman. But that was her attitude, and that's what she did. And at the end of the day, we had this business where Mordecai uncovers a plot against the king. And that's where we left off last time. So now we're in chapter 3. After these things, after these things, there's your clue. After what things? So after these things, which is she is now the queen and somebody has made a run at the king's life. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. What I will suggest to you is the appointment of Haman is in direct consequence and response to the attempt on the king's life. Because remember I led off the hour saying that one of the things that the king really enjoyed is he's you know, got a cloud of courtiers around him and they're all trying to get his attention and get his favor and you know push this person up for advancement or push this project forward and in the feast that he had last time anytime he does something he asks the opinion of everybody and you know advisors all chime in and gets lots of advice and all of a sudden that stuff is now cut off nothing comes to the king that doesn't go through Haman what he's discovered is having all these people around me flattering me and trying to get my attention and trying to get my approval for this and that and gee I get to make all these decisions and look really wise and all that kind of stuff that has a downside because some of those people don't like me and in all that court intrigue and stuff that I have enjoyed up until this point I suddenly discovered that some of my closest advisors were plotting to kill me oh I better get out of this social and political whirl that I've been in the midst of and I need to put some guards around me controlled by one gatekeeper that I trust because all of a sudden the court is a dangerous place. A couple of reasons we know that happened. First off, this is the first time we hear about Haman. Remember in the business of the great feast and in the business of choosing candidates to be his wife, Haman is not mentioned anywhere. There's a whole lot of other courtiers that are, na- that are mentioned by name. So you've got seven princes that are mentioned by name. You've got the uh, chief of the harem who is mentioned by name. You've got all sorts of people that are mentioned by name as being around the king. And all of a sudden, every one of those is now required to bow down to Haman. 
That's what it says. It specifically says, he advanced them and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So what the king says is, all right, all you other people that used to have access to me, you don't anymore. And furthermore, Haman's the one in charge. And further, furthermore, you'll bow down to him. In other words, you're not even going to get to me to bow down. You start your bowing down with Haman. Those are the things that the author used to come up with his opinion that this is what had happened. So now, two and a half. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. All right, now again, get the situation. Mordecai has said, no, not only no, but hell no. He has not yet confronted Haman. He has simply said to the other people who are sitting around out in the gate, whoa, I ain't going to do this, I'm a Jew. And everybody says, you what? You what? And then somebody goes and tells Haman to see if he actually has the courage of his convictions. Okay. In other words, lots of people talk big, but when Haman comes through there with a bunch of thugs, is this guy going to follow through? So somebody rats him out to Haman, and then Haman, well, let's go read it, verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hasuerus. So the question becomes, why wouldn't he bow down? What was the reason Daniel wouldn't? Daniel didn't bow down before an idol. We're going to see later on that in fact Esther is going to bow down in front of the queen or the king. When she comes in, she bows down in front of him. You starting to get the question? Jews don't have any problem whatsoever bowing, you know, formal bows in front of, in a court or anything like that. They don't have any problem with that, uh, especially in the United States, where we have a revolutionary history where we don't bow down to kings and queens. And it's very easy to put that mentality on Mordecai when you read the story. That's not his mentality at all. It, in other words, revolutionary America, it was a big deal that we don't have an aristocracy, we don't bow down to anybody. And when you read the story of Esther and you see that Mordecai doesn't bow down, your natural tendency, because that's your mindset, is, well, people of God don't bow down before men, or words to that effect. That's not what's going on. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting answer. But think about it a minute. The, the question was, Mordecai has uncovered the plot against the king. All of a sudden, Haman pops up like a rubber duck out of nowhere, right? So... Mordecai, well, what about me? Didn't I just save the king's life? That's a good question. But if that's the case, then Mordecai is not a hero. Mordecai is, in fact, a fool who has placed the entire Jewish people at risk of annihilation for personal pique. He has not announced what he is. He has not announced that he's a Jew until this incident. And he, and he not only refuses to bow down, 
which if he had not announced that he was a Jew, it then becomes a personal fight between him and Haman, and that's a different story. What he's done is he has said, I am a Jew, and that's why I won't bow down. Again, this tells you something about Haman also. It tells you something about Haman, and it also will tell you in a minute something about Haman's relationship to the king and the king's relationship to his nation. It's going to tell us all sorts of things. Yes, by not bowing down, he is picking a fight. One of the things he could have done is just sort of moved out of town, gone somewhere else where he never would see Haman. Mordecai picks a fight, a fight that he can avoid. As I say, he can, he can move out of town. He can go somewhere else. He can go on a long vacation. He can spend more time with his family, whatever you want to say. He can avoid this fight. He doesn't. He deliberately picks the fight, and he specifically picks it because he is a Jew. The comment was, isn't picking the fight the first step to getting the proper person elevated, which is eventually going to be Mordecai? It turns out that way, yes. But if the reason he is doing this is because Haman got picked and he didn't, he is not a hero of the Jewish people. What he's done is he's placed the Jewish nation at risk for personal reasons, and he is not a hero then. He just happens to be a lucky guy who is ambitious. And the book doesn't get written about him. The, the key here is he announces that he is a Jew when he picks this fight. That's the key. Jews don't have any problem bowing down to a king in a court. What does the Torah say you will not bow down to? An idol. Okay? So what he's saying is, as a Jew, I cannot bow down to an idol. That's the key here. In other words, if, if it's simply, you know, I don't like the way you're running things, or you should have picked somebody else, or any of those things, you can have that fight as a man. You don't need to announce that you're a Jew to do that. And if you do that, you're in danger, but nobody else is. In other words, it's simply a political brawl that comes out however it comes out. But when he stands up and says, I am a Jew, and I cannot bow down to this guy, what he is saying is, we got some idolatry going on here. But you understand the, the, the concept. Jews don't have any problem you know, showing courtesy to kings and potentates and ambassadors and dog catchers or anybody else. Okay? That's not the problem. Jews have a problem and they are forbidden in the Torah from bowing down before idols. So when he announces, I am a Jew and I will not bow down, you've got to go back to the Torah. And so what we need to figure out is why Mordecai and all of the rabbinic commentators since say that the problem is idol worship. What I am suggesting to you is Mordecai is doing the same thing that Daniel did, is doing the same thing that Moses did. What Moses did with Pharaoh, what Daniel did with Nebuchadnezzar, what the Shipra and Pua, the midwives, did with Pharaoh, what any of these people have done is they have stood up against idolatry. Now, in the case of Moses, it's really obvious because Pharaoh is a deity in the minds of the Egyptians. And in the case of Daniel, it's really obvious because Nebuchadnezzar puts up this golden statue and says, bow down and worship. Cool, that's clear. It is less clear here, but it is every bit the same situation. So the first thing we need to figure out is what's an idol? An idol is something that has to be either worshipped or propitiated in order to get or avoid 
any of the things that people need to live. So sex, power, money, rain, any of those kinds of things, if there's something that you think you need to venerate or propitiate, venerate it means, oh, whatever you are, you're really wonderful, you are great, et cetera, et cetera. Propitiating means you are really terrible and I'm giving you the sacrifice to keep you off my case. It works either way. In other words, it doesn't have to be worship. It can also be acting out of fear of this thing. Yes, fear of the smite button. There you go. Good. So an idol then is anything that you turn to to get the things that you should be getting from God. So far, so good. Now, idolatry actually springs from a positive impulse. Think about it. If you don't have the Bible, and and we have the advantage of about 3,000 years of biblical revelation, and you're just out there and, and stuff happens, and you don't know why stuff happens, you're looking for a reason. And so what you're doing is you're trying to find some way that you can affect the situation so either good stuff happens or bad stuff doesn't happen. And God tells us how to do that. Okay, God gives us explicit instructions on how to do that. Well, if you don't have the instruction book and you've got to figure it out, people are not stupid. Idolaters are not stupid people. And so they recognize that there's something going on that is outside of the physical. And what they're trying to do is figure out how to deal with it. And unfortunately, they plug into the wrong thing. And what winds up happening is every local god sort of takes on the personality of the community. So if you've got a community that's happy-go-lucky and fun-loving and all that kind of stuff, you get the god of wine in, in the Greek, Bacchus. And boy, we have lots of parties. And yeah, the parties, they involve licentiousness and, and all that kind of stuff. But if you get somebody that's a bit power-hungry and a bit murderous, then you wind up with human sacrifice, child sacrifice, etc. And the problem with idol worship is that it works. In other words, if you sacrifice somebody, the rain comes. And that's where the problem lies. In other words, if it was completely random, you sacrifice this guy and sometimes something happens, sometimes and no different than anything else, then it wouldn't be dangerous. The thing that's dangerous is it works. And so what you do is you plug into something. Okay, we sacrifice the baby and we get the rain. Then it becomes, well, we need rain, therefore we must sacrifice the baby. In other words, my desire for rain is more important than the life of the baby. That's the essence of idol worship. My desire for X is more important than whatever I have to do to get it. In other words, you're making a legitimate connection with the spiritual world. Real is a better word than legitimate. You're making a real connection with the spiritual world. It is a connection that God says you don't want to make, but you are making a connection. So what that leads to is local morality. In other words, whatever you do with your God is different than what other people do with their God. And so what you wind up with is moral relativism. It's true for me, but it's not true for you. It's true for us, but it's not true for the town down the road. And what that leads to then is people do what is in their own interest in the name of their God. In other words, we need rain, go chuck up a baby here. Doesn't matter whose baby, not mine of course, but you know, we'll find somebody, somebody's and, and we'll get this rain going. Crops aren't doing too good, well, 
there's a volcano over there and we got a spare virgin, so off she goes. Yeah, on and on and on. You, you, you've all seen the grade B movies from years past. This stuff really happens. But the problem is the human will becomes paramount. Because what you, you're doing as, as the human is you are basically manipulating the gods. And so you're more important than anybody else. Because you know the secrets to manipulating God. And the thing that about Judeo-Christianity is there is nowhere in it where anybody bows down to a man. Your relationship is with God. Now you may have a priesthood that facilitates the sacrifices and so forth, but it is not the case that you bow down to the priest. You may bow to the king, but that again is a, a respect thing, not a worship thing. Okay? So in Judaism, there is no concept of worshiping a man. Furthermore, in Judaism, truth is absolute and universal. Remember we went through Jeremiah a few weeks ago. Biblical truth is different than Greek truth. The concept is different. Greeks believe that truth is obtained by manipulating symbols, words. In other words, you put the words together in a certain order, then you get something that is true. That's the Greek mindset. And, and it works really well if you need to go to the moon because it's really good for manipulating physical stuff. And I mean, it, it, it isn't invalid, but it's incomplete. Biblical truth is a function of objects. And again, I've said this before. In other words, Sarah is a true woman if Sarah, over a period of time, can be observed to do the things that a woman is expected to do, whatever those are. And the example I used is a true bridge. A true bridge enables you to get across the river or across the channel. If it falls down, it's not a true bridge. So it's a function of objects, not a function of words. So what God is saying is, there is a truth here. This is how you find it. And it is absolute. It's not local. It is not relative. Whereas all of these idols are local, relative truths. You know, it is true that you got to, you know, turn around three times and deliver a mackerel in order to get the favor of whoever it is. That's local. That's not universal. God is universal. And what happens is, throughout the entire Bible, is you have these constant run-ins between the people of the book, Jews and Christians, and the rest of the world, which is into some form of idolatry. So now, what do we have here with Haman and the king? First thing is before there was all sorts of interaction around the king. Lots of people giving him influence, lots of people speaking, lots of ideas coming up and so forth. That's suddenly been cut off. And the only two people that are involved in making any decision are Haman and the king, period. Furthermore, they presume to decide life and death. Remember what happened when Vashti refused to come in? The king didn't say, off with her head. What did the king do? He went to his advisors and says, what should, what should the king do when the queen doesn't do what he says? Remember, he elevates it to an affair of state. He takes it out and he says, what's, what's the law here? What do we do? Now, he may make bad decisions, but at least he's making decisions based on consultation and so forth. Now that's all gone. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a private deal here where he and Haman make a deal to, to exterminate hundreds of thousands of people. Just because. 
So what Mordecai is seeing here is that this has become an extension of the Nebuchadnezzar and the Pharaoh state. And bowing down before the viceroy here is the equivalent of bowing down before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up, is the equivalent of bowing down before Pharaoh in his role as a god. And that's why he says, I'm fighting this out as a Jew. As opposed to, I really don't like him and I think he made a bad choice and we're going to undermine this guy and we're going to try and get his power from him. That he can do as Mordecai, the man. But when he pops up and he announces publicly, I'm not going to bow down to this guy because I am a Jew, what he's saying is this state has become Egypt. This state has become Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon with the golden statue. I can't go there. Just like Daniel couldn't bow down before the statue, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, you know, when they said, bow down, they said, up yours, O king. And they did. And they said, you know, God may decide to save us or not, but in any case, we're not bowing down to you. And that was the end of it. This is a continuation of that. And the reason for it is because Mordecai sees what the state has become. The state has now become an idol. That's what the story is here. Because as I said before, if it's just Haman that's just got to fit a peak because he didn't get chosen, then the thing doesn't make the Bible. The thing that makes it worthy of being in the Bible is he is standing in the shoes of Daniel and Moses and doing the same thing that they did. And it's not just a corrupt state. I mean, the state was corrupt before. This king was, he was corrupt, but it wasn't an idolatrous situation. Now it has become, and the state is looking for worship. And there he can't go any farther. So, we're down all the way to verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. In other words, he has transferred royal authority from himself to Haman. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Now, one of the things to understand is Haman is not volunteering to pay 10,000 talents of silver to destroy the Jews, even though it reads that way. What Haman is going to do, and, and everybody understands it, is the Jews are going to be annihilated, they're going to be plundered, their goods are going to be sold, and out of that is going to come 10,000 talents of silver for the king's treasury. It's not like Haman is writing a check for 10,000. 75 pounds is a talent. So 10,000 <coughs> times 75 pounds is 750,000 pounds of silver. It's important to understand that he is not so angry and foolish that he's writing his check himself. The idea here is we're going to destroy these people and it's, as Galen said, it's going to be like pulling the gold teeth out of the skulls of the dead Jews in the concentration camps. We'll get the 10,000 talents of silver, O king, and we'll do that the same way the Nazis did. Verse 12. 
Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, which is one day before Passover. So the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples. To every province in its own script, in every people in its own language, it was written in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring, which Haman has. Letters were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. In other words, having signed the final solution, they sat down and had a beer. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So why the delay? You're correct. It gives time for the non-Jewish population to sort of get things going and build up their anticipation and get excited about it. I agree with that. There's something else it does. The thing it does is it terrorizes the Jews. Yes, this is a terror campaign. So this decree has gone out that 11 months from now, we're going to kill you. Not only that, we're going to kill your children. Not only that, we're going to kill your family. And then not only that, we're going to steal all your stuff when you're dead. What this does is it terrorizes the Jews. You know, I mean, they're in the middle of, at that time, the most powerful empire in the world. And there are sufficient concentrations of them throughout the empire that when the thing finally goes down, they are able to defeat their enemies. So, so it's not you know, one and two little families here and there, there are concentrations of Jews throughout the area. The uh, comment was not too long ago, the entire city was invited in to party with the king. And now we've got this going on. And, and again, this, this indicates the change in the character of the Persian state. The king has changed, and it also indicates the character of Haman and why he was chosen. Haman is ruthless. So if you're the king and you are going from this sort of open court where lots of people have access to you and so forth, and you all of a sudden want to shut that down because somebody tried to kill you and you're scared, what do you, you put a pit bull at the door. And that's what Haman is. And that's one of the reasons I suspect he was chosen, is because that's the kind of guy he was. Yeah, he's an, he's an Amalekite, which goes you know, to the internal conflict between him and the Hebrews, but he's also just a really nasty, ruthless guy. And he can be trusted by the king that if anybody tries to get past him and mess with the king, Haman's going to take care of him. That's why he got promoted. And this vignette, which of course sets up the rest of the story, also tells us the character of the man you're dealing with. What, what, what is Mordecai's response? First off, he refuses. And he says, I'm not going to do it. The next thing he does is he goes into fasting and prayer. In other words, what he's saying is, I am fighting this out as a Jew because this is an issue of idolatry. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, God, you may choose me to save me or not, but up yours, O king. I ain't going to do it. And that's what, this, that's what this is about, is what do you do when the government does that? And, and again, that's why I say that this is an issue of idolatry. Because if it's simply personal ambition on Mordecai's part, this book doesn't get written. He has put too much at risk 
and he knows the character of Haman, I think. I don't think this is any surprise to him. But by taking this tack, he has put everything at risk. And if he's only doing that for personal ambition, this book doesn't get written. Would somebody like closing prayer?